Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. Don't sit down yet. Don't sit down yet. I see you. I see you. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have it on the screen behind us. Uh, So this is... This is our reading for today. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Stay standing while we pray together. God, you are here with us. And it's hard for us to be aware of your presence sometimes. We ask that you would make us aware of your presence this morning. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would teach us more what it means for Jesus to call to us, follow me. Teach us what it means. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may be seated. So, um, Many of you grew up in church. Many of you have probably read this passage dozens of times so that you don't think much about it. But I just want to get one thing straight about this passage. This is a weird story. Um, This is a stranger walking up to some guys who are fishing for a living. And he says, hey, guys, come follow me. We'll fish for men. And they're like, Okay, and they quit their jobs, and they follow him. That's weird, right? Uh, It made me think of a story that happened with us recently. Um, Two or three weeks ago, it was a Saturday. I have a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son, and it was a Saturday night, and we had plans, but it was raining, so we were looking for something indoors and free, So we ended up at Altamont Mall in the indoor play area. And it was Saturday night, raining. Every other parent had that idea. And it was utter chaos. And I realize that experts think that COVID originated in Wuhan, China. But my money's on the tree slide in the Altamont Mall. But anyway, about 10 minutes after we got there, uh, Lucy, our daughter, almost ran into this other girl who later we found out, I think her name was Emma. And I'm not even sure if they said anything to one another because it all happened so fast. But it went from they almost ran into one another to they're hugging and giggling. And I'm not exaggerating. In less than 30 seconds, they were holding one another's hands, staring to each other's eyes and playing ring around the rosies together. 
And uh, I was sitting on this bench several feet away from another dad, and we were just marveling at this and saying, like, wouldn't it be, like, funny if adults interacted like this? <laughs> and, and I told him, I need at least 15 minutes before I'm ready to play Ring Around the Rosies with somebody. <laughs> but ad adults obviously don't just instantly connect, and we have trust issues. Um, so it's, it's cute to see when a, when a child does this, and I think it even gets to the idea of what it means to have childlike faith and to come to Jesus like a child. But to imagine adults doing this is bizarre. And it's about as bizarre as leaving your entire life behind because a stranger says, follow me, right? Um, in fact, if you had seen this happen, you see some minute work and a stranger comes up and says, hey guys, follow me. We're gonna fish for men. And, and they're like, okay, we'll do that. I quit, dad, tell mom for me. You would be thinking, I don't know which of these people is crazier? Um, but of course, there's some important context that we need to consider to help us understand a bit more why four guys would leave behind their families and careers. And of course, the first and most important thing that we can't underestimate is that this wasn't just some random stranger. This was Jesus Christ. This was God in the flesh through whom all things were created. So if that stranger comes to you and says, follow me, you should drop everything and follow him. You should, but of course, not everyone did. In fact, some people despised Jesus so much that they had him killed. But for these four young men, there was something very compelling about Jesus. From the first chapter of John, if, if you read John 1, starting at about verse 35, it seems that sometime before this, Simon, who's also called Peter, uh, Simon and Andrew had actually been following Jesus some, along with Philip and Nathaniel, who would also become disciples of Jesus. They followed him for a time, but for some reason, they went back to their normal everyday work as fishermen. And then... In the Gospel of Luke, uh, in chapter 4, it tells the same story that we're looking at from Matthew today, but it gives us some additional details. Jesus had been teaching the crowds, and you might remember this story where the crowds are, well, they're crowding him, and so he asked Peter if he can get on his boat. So Jesus actually got on Peter's boat and taught from there. And when he was done... He, he tells them to go out and cast their nets, and then they have this miraculous catch, more fish than they've ever seen in their lives after an entire night of catching no fish at all. So it's in this context that Jesus calls them. So Jesus is not some random, random stranger. They know who he is. They've heard him teach. They've seen him perform at least one miracle. But perhaps most significantly, they knew exactly what it meant for Jesus to say to them, follow me. The problem today for us is we don't really get what it means when we read that Jesus said, follow me. Um, if I came up after church and I said, come follow me, you would tell the people you're with like, 
hang tight for a minute. Mark just wants to show me something or he wants to tell me something. I doubt any of you would start kissing your wife goodbye and, and quitting your job right there because I had said, follow me. But to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that call to follow Jesus meant something very significant to them. They understood that this was a rabbi calling them to be his disciples. So first thing we should consider is what does it mean to be a rabbi? Because that's not a word that we use a lot. And when we do, we're usually thinking about it in terms of like uh, a leader in a, in a Jewish synagogue or something like that. Um, so I'll need to explain a bit of what it meant to be a rabbi in Jesus' day. But I want to give a disclaimer before I dive into all of this stuff. Scripture tells us everything that we need to know to have life in Jesus. So I'm not trying to communicate to you that you need to know the ins and outs of rabbis and disciples and first century Judaism in order to follow Jesus. But I do think having some of that contextual understanding makes it richer and it brings some of these stories to life and, and I think it's worth diving into it. So that's what we're gonna do for just a little bit. So, uh, in Jesus' time, the term rabbi didn't necessarily refer to a certain occupation or role, but it meant something like master or great one. And it was a term of respect and reverence. And then uh, you might know in AD 70, so after Jesus' time here on earth, the temple was destroyed. And it was after AD 70 that rabbis started having this more narrow meaning of kind of a Jewish authority who's teaching the Hebrew scriptures. But we see multiple times in the New Testament, people referred to Jesus as rabbi, and often in our Bibles, that's translated as teacher. And that's not a bad translation of it at all. Um, but he wasn't just called rabbi by his disciples, he was called rabbi by ordinary people, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, so there was something that these people recognized in Jesus' training and the way that he taught and the, just the actions that he was carrying out that they commonly recognized this is a first century rabbi. And some of the hallmarks of the great rabbis were they traveled from city to city teaching. Uh, they traveled with disciples following them and uh, it would usually be one slightly older disciple and then several younger disciples who were probably teenagers. They taught in synagogues and in homes. And if you don't know what a synagogue is, there's only one temple and that was in Jerusalem. But they would have, uh, every village would kind of have its own sort of, uh, kind of like a church. So that's what a synagogue was. Um, the rabbis taught sitting down so all the things I've just mentioned, we've seen Jesus do these. In fact, when Jesus taught in Peter's boat, he sat down to teach. And we're about to start a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And most of us probably have in mind like a painting or a flannel graph from when we were a kid of God standing on top of, I mean, Jesus standing on top of a mountain with his arms raised or something. But actually, if you read, it says he sat down before he started teaching. And that's what the rabbis did. In their teachings, they often used parables, Jesus did that. They offered, answered questions with questions. Jesus did that to the annoyance of a lot of people. And they would quote a phrase of scripture assuming that the listener 
knew that passage of scripture and could figure out the rest of what he was saying just from understanding the context. And if, if you were to ever want to study something in the Gospels that would be illuminating, you could go through all the times that Jesus quoted scripture and then look at its original Old Testament context and see what else is said around it because sometimes it tells us some astounding things about what Jesus is saying about himself without him having to actually come out and say that. Um, in just a minute, you'll understand why he could assume that his hearers probably knew that context. Um, in addition to this, there are phrases used of Jesus that were commonly used of rabbis. Um, one is a rabbi's disciples were said to sit at the feet of their rabbi. The disciples would sit at the feet of the rabbi. So when you read in Luke 10 that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, this is saying she was a disciple of Jesus. Um, which means he's a rabbi. It's also interesting because Jesus is only one of two rabbis that we know of in recorded history who allowed women to be his disciples. So already he was showing himself to be countercultural and, and subversive. A rabbi would teach an interpretation of the Torah, which is the word of God, and this was called their yoke. Their interpretation of the Torah was their yoke. So listen to this passage that you've heard before in Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My interpretation of the Torah is easy, and my burden is light. In other words, Jesus' teaching is not burdensome. It's not hard to understand like the yokes of some of the other rabbis. And if you were to um, geek out on this stuff like I do, you could read some of the teachings of the other rabbis, and they stacked rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. It's not just observe the Sabbath. It's here's how much weight you can carry on the Sabbath. Here's all these things you can't do on the Sabbath. When Jesus finished his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That word authority comes from a Hebrew word that you don't need to remember, but it's smicha. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Um, Smicha means something like authority, but most rabbis would teach an interpretation that was taught to them, that was taught to their rab rabbi, and taught to that rabbi's rabbi. But someone with smicha would have their own interpretation of the scriptures. So think about in the sermon all those times that Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he was giving his own interpretation because he's a rabbi with smicha, with authority. And as soon as he's done preaching, everyone who heard it said, oh man, this is a rabbi with smicha. So the deeper you look into the practice of rabbis, the more clear it becomes that Jesus was a first century rabbi, even though it's never explicitly spelled out. And since he was a rabbi and rabbis had disciples, Jesus needed to call disciples too. So the next thing we need to look at is what does it mean to be a disciple? And uh, Pastor Tyler pointed out last week, disciple or the Hebrew word talmidim 
uh, it was the term that followers of Jesus were commonly called in the New Testament. In fact, when we think about a follower of Jesus, we call them Christians. That word shows up three times in the New Testament. But the word disciple or some form of it shows up almost 300 times in the New Testament. So let's see what it means to be a disciple in that first century Jewish context. Um, In verse 18, it tells us that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus lived in the region of Galilee, which is basically everywhere that borders the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So he was a Galilean, and he was teaching to predominantly Galileans. This is significant because that tells us a little bit about who the audience was, who these disciples were. And in the first century, both girls and boys attended schools in Galilee, but only the most gifted of the boys continued their education beyond the age of 15. By 15, most girls were already married. Um, I'm gonna briefly highlight the phases of education, and you don't need to remember all of these terms that I'm gonna use, you need to just get the gist because it'll you'll get why I'm telling you this in a minute. From about 5 to 12 years old, the children went to the local synagogue where they were taught by a rabbi that was hired by the community. And this was kind of like their elementary school. It was called Bet Sefer, House of the Book. And they spent their days reading, writing, and memorizing the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. This is what's crazy. By the time these Galilean boys and girls were 12 years old, they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Memorized by 12. I'm high-fiving people if I can remember a verse from Leviticus. Um, These kids had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. For most students, this was the end of their education, but all girls at this point would stay home and learn to do what women did. They would learn from their mom and their older sisters. Most boys would learn their father's trade at this point. But even for someone with only education until they were 12, this means they know the scriptures. So if Jesus is quoting scripture, they can tell you what comes before it, they can tell you what comes after it. The most gifted male students would continue on to a secondary school called Bet Talmud. Now, you don't need to get lost in these Hebrew words, but Talmud sounds kind of like Talmud, which is the word for disciple. Talmud means house of learning. So Talmud is learning, Talmud is kind of like student. So the the two words are related. So in the Bet Talmud, they studied the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. So that by the time they had finished Bet Talmud, they would have the entire Old Testament memorized. And remember, too, there weren't like chapters and verses back then. They just had to know it. Um, The highest education for the best male students was Bet Midrash, and that means house of study. They would do this while they were also learning a trade. So we can see that Jesus probably did all of these things and we even know that Jesus at some point learned to trade because his dad was a carpenter, he was a carpenter. Um, But these students in Bet Midrash, they studied the oral Torah. 
And this was interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures. And if I'm losing you, just it's okay. We're gonna we're gonna get back to like solid ground in a minute. But the the oral Torah was where all the rules upon rules upon rules come in. And when you see Jesus talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, a lot of times what they're arguing about is this oral Torah. So you might remember that story where Jesus is walking through a grain field and his disciples are kind of like popping some grains of weed and eating it as they walk along. And then these Pharisees and scribes, they have their panties in the water and they're like, hey, Jesus, why is your disciples doing what's not allowed on the Sabbath? Is there anywhere in scripture that you can remember in the Old Testament that says you can't pop a grain of wheat and eat it on the Sabbath? Nope. But it's in the oral Torah. It's in their interpretation. So this is what you learn in that highest level of education. So students who had completed Bet Midrash would then, if they were like the elite, they would seek permission to study with a famous rabbi. And usually this required leaving home to travel with him for a lengthy period of time. And these students who were chosen to do this were called disciples or Talmudim. And often parents would go out to try to scout the best rabbi the same way parents look for the best schools and colleges for their kids today. And the rabbi would question the students extensively if they'd made it that far, they knew, they knew scripture. So he's not like script, just like drilling them on scripture, but he's trying to see if they're committed enough to hack it. And most did not get chosen. But when a student would ask to be a disciple, his request to the rabbi would be, Rabbi, may I follow you? And if the rabbi found him acceptable, the reply would be, come follow me. When a rabbi chose someone to be his disciple, the disciple was more than just a student because they weren't just trying to learn some things or get a degree. The goal of a disciple was to become like the rabbi, to become like the rabbi. The disciples followed their rabbi in a very literal sense. They traveled with him. They ate when he ate. They literally used the bathroom when he did. They did not want to leave his side even when he was using the bathroom in case they heard him utter a prayer. And I'm not making this up. It is said that disciples followed their rabbi so closely that they followed in the dust of the rabbi, meaning as the rabbi walked and kicked dust up, the dust settled on his disciples because they were so close behind him. Why? Because they wanted to be with this rabbi and even the mundane parts of life. So they don't just want to talk about scripture and prayer and some psalms. They want to see how he applies God's word to every part of his life, even the mundane parts of life. So the invitation to come follow Jesus is to be with him always. But Jesus was a different kind of rabbi than the other ones. If you think about it, what were Peter, Andrew, James, and John doing when Jesus approached them? They were fishing. They were not in school. James and John were with their dad. So what does this tell us about their fitness to be disciples of one of the famous rabbis? It means that they didn't make the cut. 
Um, maybe they didn't even make it to Bet Midrash in school. But those four boys are who Jesus called to be his disciples, the ones who didn't make the cut. And Jesus also flipped the script because they didn't come to Jesus asking, can I be your disciple? He went to them and said, come follow me. Chances are they had already given up the dream of following one of the big rabbis. But in John 15, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He chose them to fish for men, and I want you to think of what it means to fish for men. And just to make it a little less weird, the Greek word uh, anthropoi, it, it means man or woman. It just means people. So it's a little less creepy if you know it just means fishing for people. Um, but I want you to think about what it, what it means to be, to say fishing for men and women, fishing for people. This is a new radical kind of discipleship that Jesus is instituting because what rabbis did is their disciples traveled with them sometimes for three or four years and they're ultimately wanting to teach them everything they know so that they can in turn be a rabbi themselves. And what do rabbis do? They're selective. They choose the best and the brightest and the spiritual elite. But Peter, Andrew, James, and John fished with nets. You can't discriminate against the type of fish that you're bringing in when you fish with a net. When Jesus invites them to be fishers of men, he casts the net wide and says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rabbi Jesus calls, come follow me. Come, follow me. And maybe he's calling you today. The great paradox of following Jesus is you receive an infinite reward. You don't have to earn it, though. You receive an infinite reward. You don't have to earn it. And yet, it's costly. Jesus warns us that we have to count the cost of following him. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, and you've heard this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke 14, Jesus also says that if we don't renounce all that we have, we can't be his disciples. Following him will be worth it, but you've got to be ready for it to flip your world upside down. And if it hasn't, maybe you're not really following him. We don't see any stories in scripture of people repenting and having faith in Jesus and their lives and priorities remain the same. Think about Zacchaeus, um, you know, the wee little man. Um, he was a wealthy, crooked tax collector who um, had a high standard of living, um, such a high standard of living that he could host a big party with no prior notice. And when he encountered Jesus, listen to what his response was. This is Luke 19, 8. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. So don't just skip past that. Think about half of your goods. Think about giving half of your goods to the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, 
and he had because he was a tax collector, I restore it fourfold. Anything that he had extorted, anything that he had taken a bribe on, any extra money, he was not only going to repay it, he was going to repay it fourfold. There goes his wealth. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. See, it's not that following Jesus cost us nothing. It's that following Jesus reorients our lives in such a way that the worth of the gospel makes everything else seem trivial. It would be difficult, both emotionally and logistically, to think about selling all that you have. You'd have sentimental attachments to things. It would be a tax nightmare. You'd be figuring out whether to have an estate sale or put it on offer up. But the man who bought the field sold all he had in joy because he knew the great worth of what he was getting in exchange. And that was to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus. And this is why four young Galilean fishermen left behind their jobs, their homes, and their families. Because what they were offered was to be with Jesus. And they knew the value of that offer. So I want to try to make this practical. Um, as much as I love uh, talking about, you know, Hebrew words, and I'm sure you're riveted to learn about the first century Galilean education system, if it doesn't have anything to do with you, I might as well be telling you some history facts about Napoleon or Julius Caesar. But of course, this does have something to do with every one of us. And I'm going to start here. Hebrews 13.8 says... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So if Jesus called his disciples to deny themselves and follow him in the first century, he is calling his disciples to deny themselves and follow him in the 21st century. And uh, if you're a middle school student, a high school student, a college student, I don't want you to check out and think that this is something that you'll figure out when you've graduated from college or maybe when you've gotten married or your career is settled. Peter, when he was called, was probably about 20. But the rest of the 12 apostles were probably teenagers, probably weren't married yet. If you want to know more about that, I can make a compelling case for it. But the chances are these men were teenagers. So you're not too young to be a disciple. And anyone, anyone, male, female, young, old, can be a disciple of Jesus. But the four fishermen, they followed a man in the flesh. So it has to look different for us, right? Like that's the hard thing. I'm not unaware of that. It, it's, it's simple to follow a physical person. But how in the world are we supposed to follow someone that we've never actually seen? So I want to ask you some questions that really only you can answer. What would you have to do to be a disciple of Jesus? 
what comes to mind? What would you have to do to be a disciple of Jesus? And what would it cost you? Would it cost you time? Would you have to read your Bible more or pray more? Um, maybe it's certainly hard to follow Jesus if you don't know who he is or what he's saying, but I'm talking about something different from the mere checking of boxes. What would you have to do to be with Jesus, to experience his presence? And would you say that you know how to be with Jesus? Have you ever experienced his presence? And a question that my mentor asked me a lot, you've heard Pastor Tyler ask this question, you've heard me ask this, but it's a good one to constantly ask. How would you describe your relationship with Jesus? Is it distant? Is it kind of casual? Is it mostly intellectual? Or is it intimate? And what would you like to be able to describe your relationship with Jesus as? In Mark 3, when Jesus appointed his 12 disciples, it says that he called them so that they might be with him. And of course, he taught them, he equipped them, he empowered them, and he sent them out with power to heal and cast out demons and teach and do all these wonderful things. But the first thing the Gospel of Mark says is that Jesus called disciples to be with him. That is the foundation of following Jesus. Think about going to dinner with, like, your boyfriend or your spouse or a best friend or something how well is that dinner going to go if you're messing around on your phone the whole time? They're going to get upset with you and they might even say, you're not being what? You're not being present with me. Because we all know that there's a way that you can sit across the table from someone but not be present with them. Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew are, behold, I am with you Always, Jesus is always present, but are we always present with him? You may need to pray more or read more or go to church more. Those are things that disciples of Jesus do, but those things are not discipleship. Rather than tasking yourself with a heavy yoke and more burdens, why not make some practical steps toward reminding yourself that Jesus is with you always? not just when you're doing quote-unquote spiritual things. Um, he's with you when you brush your teeth and when you check your email. He was with you when you put your socks on this morning. As many of you know, uh, Brother Lawrence is a hero of mine and an example of me, of someone who practiced continually being in the presence of God. And you could just about put a blindfold on and stick your finger in his book and there'd be some good quote that I could put up here, but listen to his simple words here. This is from a letter that he wrote. Remember what I advised you to do. Think about God as often as you can, day and night, in everything you do. He's always with you. Just as you would be rude if you deserted a friend who is visiting you, why would you be disrespectful of God by abandoning his presence? Do not forget him. Think of him often. 
adore him ceaselessly, live and die with him. That's the real business of Christians. In a word, it's our profession. If we do not know it, we must learn it. If we do not know it, we must learn it. I'd have to say I am probably not much farther along than most of you in this room when it comes to learning to do this. And it did not and still does not come easily or naturally to me, but I've been doing my best to practice this for the past couple of years. And I started with something practical and easy. I started setting an alarm on my watch that goes off once an hour. It's silent. Um, and I just hit repeat as soon as it goes off so that even if I've lost myself and started to believe that it's all on me and I have to do it all on my own strength, once an hour, I have a tangible reminder to stop and just be mindful that Jesus is with me. And I can tell you that it's changing me. Psalm 23, which we just finished, says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Jesus told those 12 apostles that apart from him, we can do nothing. So the pressure's off. You don't have to do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. People should know that we're disciples of Christ by our love, not by our Bible plan or our prayer spreadsheet or the you know, number of trips to the church building that we make each week. Every single one of you knows someone who is checking all of those boxes and they're a jerk. Am I right? There has to be something more compelling about us than the boxes that we check. The point of following Jesus isn't to know facts about Jesus. It is to be like Jesus. And the only way to do that is to be with Jesus. And as we close, I just want to point out Every follower of Jesus needs someone who's farther along that they can look to, someone who's like Jesus, someone that you just have the feeling like, I can just tell she's been around Jesus. I can just tell he knows Jesus. We need examples like that in our life so that we can actually believe that it's possible to live without fear and hurry and frenzy that it's possible to actually live this Jesus way. We need examples of people who are doing that. So I encourage you, seek those men and women out. And if you, don't, if you can't think of a single person who actually looks like Jesus, pray that God would show someone to you. That's why Paul told the people that he was teaching to imitate him. Paul's not the rabbi, Jesus is the rabbi but we need some examples. And mature followers of Jesus need to model that to someone else. That's how this life works. But to live this way, it will cost you. You might have to quit a job. You might have to give up some luxuries. It might just cost you time. It might make you look foolish in the eyes of the world, but it will cost you. James... Peter, Andrew, James, and John rolls off the tongue. We've heard of them. They're celebrities. 2,000 years later, we're talking about them. But James was the first apostle martyred. He was put to the sword by Herod. Peter, crucified upside down. 
Andrew crucified on a cross shaped like an X. John was boiled alive and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But those four fishermen got to be part of the work that Jesus was doing in the story that God was writing. They got to be with Jesus. And it didn't just change them, it changed the world. So I want you to consider that when you hear Jesus say, come follow me, count the cost and whatever the cost, follow him. Let's pray. God, you are a God of grace, a God of goodness. You are long-suffering. You don't hold us accountable for our sins because of what you've done through us, through your son Jesus. And yet, it's not a simple or an easy thing to follow him. In fact, most days I don't know how to do it. And I would imagine my brothers and sisters here would say the same Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't have to figure it out. Thank you that you are always with us. Thank you, God, that your power is made perfect in our weakness and that your grace is sufficient for us. I pray that you would give each of us a vision for who we'd be, even just a year from now, if we started really being present with you. And I pray that you would give us some tangible, practical step that we can move toward to be closer to you, to know you more, to be more like you. And for any who don't know you, I pray that you would introduce yourself this morning and call them. And we pray this big, huge, but totally doable prayer for you. In Jesus' name, amen.